every year, generally towards the beginning of the year, I like to share a certain message uh, having to do with maybe refocusing us as a church so that we understand really how to measure success as a church. And that's a question for you. How do we measure success as a church? How do you know whether the church is succeeding in its mission? Filled seats? Is that success? Notoriety? Name in the news? I don't know. YouTube views? Podcast subscriptions? How do you measure success? That's important for us because however we determine how we measure success, that's going to determine our methodology as a church, right? And so what we ought to do is have some clarity, or what we ought to have is some clarity as a church regarding what the mission of the church is and how, how then we measure success. At Calvary Baptist Church, we have what we call a biblical philosophy of ministry, a biblical philosophy of ministry. And in all that we're going to say this morning, please let it be known that we do not believe we have a corner on the truth and there's no other good churches out there, okay? Please do not have that impression because that's not how we feel whatsoever. However... We do believe we have an obligation to the best of our ability to be faithful to what we recognize as biblical principles in regard to how Christ would have his church operate. And so with that, we're going to share this morning six pillars to a biblical philosophy of ministry that drive us as a church. And I think that this is probably very appropriate considering we're starting a membership class next week. Because maybe this will help you uh, make that decision that, yeah, this is a church that I would like to join, I'd like to be a part of, because uh, I embrace that same philosophy of ministry. And so we're going to share six principles. This is going to be topical, and so we're not going to have you turn to a certain passage right now, even though we're going to see in a moment that we believe the main appetite of the church ought to be expository preaching. But today is going to be a topical message. And so Zach's going to help us out by putting some scripture on the screen. But we're going to look at six principles, and these are paramount because they are biblical principles. And so as a church, what we say is that no program and no teaching and no methodology should violate these six principles. Our biblical philosophy of ministry is really the measuring rod by which we measure any proposed program or teaching or methodology. And really, to a certain degree, this is how we measure success. Are we being faithful to these six biblical principles? And so, we're going to get right into it. The first pillar to our philosophy of ministry is a high view of God. A high view of God. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, so then it makes sense that we start here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And so we recognize God is holy. God is exalted. God is high and lifted up. God is set apart. And as we're going to see in a moment, the uh, holiness of God should lead us to fear God and actually then should affect the way that we worship. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. That fear is a reverence. It's a reverential awe. The Bible says of unbelievers, one of the characteristics of an unbeliever is that there is no fear of God before their eyes. And so it ought to characterize every believer uh, a fear of God. He is, and he is holy, and he is authoritative. God is sovereign. God is eternal. God is self-existent. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-present, and God is unchanging. God is holy and righteous and just, and even jealous and good and loving and merciful and gracious and long-suffering and forgiving. We are to have a biblical conception as to the character of God, and that ought to drive how we do church, how we worship, what we teach. And uh, the Bible actually explicitly tells us that the character of God then should trickle down into how we worship Him, in that there is an acceptable worship and there is an unacceptable worship. And so Hebrews 12.28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship. And what is acceptable worship? With reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. That's a high view of God. And so when God is put in his rightful place, that then affects the way that we worship. And so there is an acceptable worship and an unacceptable worship. If acceptable worship is worshiping in reverence and awe, an unacceptable worship would be what? Well, flippancy, irreverence. By the way, as we think about the character of God, 
and try to have a biblical understanding as to the attributes and the nature of God, we are also careful not to maybe become imbalanced. We understand that God is simplistic. Uh, that is, there is divine simplicity. That is, he's not, uh, we cannot part out God's character attributes and pit one against another. Uh, and you see this in ministries, don't you? There's some ministries who like to present a God who is all wrath, hell, fire, and brimstone. And you're going to fear God in the sense that you're afraid that at any moment his justice or his wrath is going to break out upon you, right? Hellfire, brimstone. Not a whole lot about love. On the other hand, you could have the other extreme where you have a church where God is all love all the time. Uh, Not a whole lot about holiness, not a whole lot about justice, which certainly does damage to the whole concept of Christ's substitutionary atonement upon the cross. If God is not just and if he's not wrathful towards sin, then for what purpose did Jesus Christ die and bear the wrath of God? And so we think about God's character. We have a high view of God, a biblical conception of his attributes, and we preach and teach those things with balance, hopefully. Of course, we're sinners, and so we fail in this to a certain degree, but that's our desire and that's our obligation. Psalm 96.9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. And so we find this biblical balance. God is holy and God is just, yes, but God is also tender, compassionate Father, right? And we seek to preach that balance. Proverbs 16.6 says, be steadfa- uh, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, what? One turns away from evil. And so even there we see uh, further balance. God is just, We are to live in fear of him, so then that then affects even the way that we live. And that's reflected in our teaching as well. And you say, uh, well, does fear of God mean that maybe that downplays the love of God, as we've already touched upon? Well, even in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? What does that mean then? As a preacher, as teachers, we instill a fear so that you're quaking in your boots when you think about God. He goes on, and again, Old Testament passage. What does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? And what does that look like? To walk in all his ways? Okay. And then what? To love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And so love is not divorced from fear, not at all, but a reverential fear and awe of God recognizing who he is leads us to love him, and then that then affects how we live for him. Deuteronomy 10, 20, same passage continues. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear he is your praise, he is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Israel was always told to look back to what God had done, what he's accomplished for them, especially in the Exodus, that redemption that he had accomplished for them. And then, on the basis of what he's done and who he is, what? Love him. Fear him. And we're told the same thing. Uh, Jesus Christ has ushered us into a greater Exodus, and we are to look at all that God has done for us in Jesus. And that leads us to what? Fear him, and it leads us to love him, and it leads us to live for him. And so we worship in response to the holiness of God, and we worship even as a reflection of the holiness of God. And what does that mean? It means that someone who visits Calvary Baptist Church, or we could say somebody who looks at your life or my life, should gain a sense of who God is just by observing our worship or even watching our lives. And so we worship in reverence, we worship in awe, we offer an acceptable worship because of who God is, and it's a, also then a reflection of who God is. And so we don't mix the unholy, we don't mix the irreverent, and we could go on with stories of some crazy wackiness that you see in some churches with this desire to appeal to the culture. But we don't mix the unholy, the irreverent things of the world into our worship service. Why? Because we don't want to detract from God's holiness. We cannot worship God in irreverence or flippancy. God is holy, and he is majestic, and so he must be worshipped in holiness. And so, 
Isaiah 66.2 says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That then, again, results in holy living, doesn't it? 1 Peter 1.13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then he says, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. And so this drives our ministry too, doesn't it? This drives the philosophy of our teaching as well. And so we encourage or um, instruct believers to live obedient lives. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so Jared today in the equipped class was talking about that common misconception of the wrathful God of the Old Testament and Jesus, uh, the loving manifestation of God in the New Testament. Well, Peter here is actually saying to Christians, as obedient children... Uh, live not in confirmation, not not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Why? Well, because it's written. Be you holy, because he's holy, and he's quoting Leviticus. Uh, so, what are we doing here? Are we going to? We have a sharp divide between Old Testament God and New Testament God. Uh, no, uh, Peter is saying that God is holy, so you be holy. And in verse seventeen, and if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And so in that text, we have God being holy and we should be holy. We have God then presented as father as well. And then God even presented as judge. And so he's holy and he is father and he is judge. And all these things uh, uh, contribute to our understanding of his character. But Peter's whole point there is be obedient children. Don't live like you used to live. Don't live like the culture. Instead, pursue holiness and do it in the context of a relationship with God as your Father. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, one of the things we're going to say in a moment uh, is that at Calvary Baptist Church, we are committed to not let a legalistic foot in the door. That is, we oppose legalism. Rules-based religion. Uh, you must obey, right, in order to please God. Uh, in order to have standing before God, maybe we could say better. Uh, we're not going to allow a legalistic foot in the door. However, the Bible does instruct believers to live obedient lives, right? Obedience born out of love. Obedience born out of an absolute sense of indebtedness for the blessings that God has given us through Jesus Christ. Uh, But that's not legalism. And so, again, we try to maintain that balance. Uh, We don't want heartless obedience. Not at all. But on the other hand, God does want our hearts. And that will manifest itself in living as obedient children. Right? So... We preach and teach a biblically balanced view of God that is a high view of God. Why? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, again, it's fitting that our philosophy of ministry begins here. Application. We teach and preach the biblical revelation of God. He is a holy, sovereign, all-powerful God who, yes, hates sin and loves holiness, He does not look lightly upon sin, and so required the ultimate sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Not only this, but he will execute his judgment in wrath upon all those who have not exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going to see next week in John chapter 5, all judgment has been committed to the Son, so that all must believe in the Son. And when he returns, he's going to bring judgment. We preach God as the Bible presents him the glorious king of the universe who sits upon his throne, high and lifted up, surrounded by those angels who continuously cry what? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And so we will not promote irreverent worship, will not deviate from Scripture in creating a conception of God that detracts from any of his character qualities that detracts from his majesty or his glory or his holiness. 
We don't rush into the throne room of God with flippancy or irreverence. And so this manifests itself in the way that we do church and our approach to preaching and teaching and music and prayer and every every other area of ministry. And so we proclaim his glory and majesty in worship. We exalt him. We submit to him. We encourage men and women to order their lives in obedience to him in the context of loving relationship to him as father. And so we're God-centered, prayerfully. This is no cult of personality. Uh, All eyes are not to be on the preacher or the teacher, but our role here is simply to point to Christ, to point to the holiness of God. And so we are to preach to please God, not people. We're to conduct our ministries to please God, not people. You know, the the Bible is not primarily a book of how-tos. It's not primarily a book of, you know, five ways to improve your marriage, though that's there too. It's not primarily ten ways to succeed in the workplace or seven ways to raise great kids, etc., etc. I mean, that's that self-help therapeutic gospel that's out there. That's not primarily what the Bible is. The Bible is primarily the self-revelation of God. And so, we are to teach and preach the word as it is. Because when one believes and submits to God's self-revelation as contained in the scriptures, uh, that is when they come to Christ, that's when they deal with their soul. When these get a glimpse of who God is and order their lives in reverence to him, uh, everything else in life falls into place, doesn't it? And uh, then we're going to really be helped when it comes to uh, five ways to be a better husband (laughs) and seven ways to raise great kids. So our ministry must promote the fear of God in the lives of the people we touch. Number two. Number one is a high view of God. That's foundational to everything. Number two an affirmation of the sufficiency of Scripture. An affirmation of the sufficiency of Scripture. There was a young pastor in the city of Ephesus named Timothy, and Timothy had all kinds of pressures all around him. He had opposition, he had persecution, there was spiritual warfare going on in Ephesus. And the Apostle Paul had to write to Timothy to encourage him. Like, Timothy, stick to it. Timothy, we know ministry's hard. We know that the culture all around you is hostile, Uh, We know that you are a vast minority in the midst of this hostile culture all around you. And again, great spiritual warfare. Ephesians is that text in which we get Ephesians 6, where we see the the, uh, armor of God uh, having to do with spiritual warfare. So it was tough where Timothy was. Paul encourages Timothy, however, when it comes to success in ministry. And uh, he says to him in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul's saying to Timothy, Timothy, you have everything you need for successful ministry, even in a hostile culture, even in a culture where spiritual warfare is raging all around you, you have everything that you need. And isn't it interesting here that he's not prompting Timothy to be innovative? He's not prompting Timothy to pull the culture to figure out the best way to reach uh, the, the culture in its present state. He's saying, Timothy, you have everything you need so that you can be complete. You have everything you need to be equipped for every good work. And what is it? The inspired scriptures. All scripture is given by God and is profitable. It's good for, it is effective in teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. What's this going to do to Timothy's ministry? I know where my focus must be. My focus must be upon the Word of God because it's inspired. It's inspired. And so receive it as the Word of God and treat it as the Word of God and employ it as the Word of God. It's inspired. It's inerrant. So we trust what it says. It's authoritative. And so we do what it says. James tells us that we are to receive the Word of God with what? Meekness. Meekness. And so we hope that as we open the Word of God, all of us collectively... And even those who teach and preach here at Calvary, uh, I hope that during that study process, first and foremost, you bow your knee to, to God through the Scriptures and you allow your own heart to be changed because we receive the Word with meekness. It's inspired and it's inerrant and it's authoritative and it is sufficient. And so we put the Word of God to the test. We rely upon it by faith to do what God promised it would do. In Isaiah chapter 55, as God's prophesying the coming restoration of his people and really coming salvation, he says, my word will go out. 
The word that goes out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing to which I sent it. In other words, when my word goes out, it accomplishes everything that I intend for it to accomplish. It produces the fruit that I intend it to produce. It never comes back to me void. We trust that promise. This is the power of God into salvation. Romans chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's important because he's talking about two different cultures there. To the Jew and to the Greek, he says, I want to preach it in Rome. Well, I mean Rome, of all places. Emperor worship there in Rome. Uh, Paganism there in Rome. Uh, Rampant immorality there in Rome. Sound familiar? What does Paul say? What do I want to do? I want to come and clean up the culture. That's not what he says. I want to preach morality. That's not what he says. I want to come clean up your politics. That's not what he says. I want to go to Rome and I want to preach the gospel. Why? Because that's the power of God for salvation. And so this drives how we do ministry. How do you engage with the, with the reprobate culture? How do you engage in a culture that's hostile towards God? How do you engage with a culture that is steeped in immorality? Well, I have an idea. How about we preach the gospel? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We want to see souls saved. We want to see lives changed by the Holy Spirit of God. We don't want to see a moralized culture, which is now poisoned by its own sense of self-righteousness. Meanwhile, they're lost, right? And so, the Word of God is the power of God unto salvation. Peter says that we've been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And then Paul says again in Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So now we just said that we should receive the word with meekness. Well, as we consider how we should do church, what we do is we read what the scripture says and we even receive this instruction with meekness and say, okay, then we're going to preach the gospel. It's the power of God. We submit to that and we trust that promise and that's how we do ministry. And so what's a measure of success? Are we faithfully preaching the word of God? This is the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God for spiritual growth. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says that we are to desire the word as newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that it may grow up into salvation. This speaks of sanctification and spiritual growth. The word of God softens hearts and exposes hearts and hardens hearts, and it produces Faith, it draws men to Christ, it brings forth salvation, it establishes truth, it reproves, it corrects, it instructs us in the way of righteousness. It acts as a mirror which exposes our own sin in every area in which we fall short of God's glory. It's a sword which exposes the thoughts and intents of the heart, it edifies, it builds up, it encourages, it comforts. We have everything we need to do ministry. The scriptures are the inspired and errant, authoritative, effectual, eternally relevant, and therefore sufficient word of God. So then Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. He's saying, I have accomplished all that I ought to have accomplished. I have a clear conscience. Why? For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God. So, Timothy, again, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and purity. Then he says this, until I come, Timothy, remember Timothy pastoring there in Ephesus, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's the key. Keep the main thing the main thing. So a high view of God will lead us to submit to his word and then trust him to bless it. So what does a failure to do that look like? Well, we seek some authority outside of Scripture. Personal experience, philosophy, whatever it may be, tactics. Uh, I'm going to read, you know, uh, some book on marketing so I can know the best way to build up a church. And and that really is a trend within churches, isn't it? A CEO-type pastor who just has the talent and ability to grow a movement, which many churches can grow in numbers and can grow as an organization, which may absolutely be failing when it comes to a biblical measure of success. And so, our application, well, we focus on the Word of God. Expository preaching is the main diet of the church. Expository preaching is the main diet of the church. And so, uh, we've been working our way through the Gospel of John. 
And at times you're working through the Gospel of John, and I recognize, well, there's nothing in this passage about parenting. There's nothing in this passage about being a good husband, about being a good wife uh, directly, though you can make some of those applications. But what are we doing? I remember just recently uh, I, I preached a message on Jesus being the temple. Jesus being the temple. And so he says, tear down the temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And he's talking about his body. What he's saying is that he now is the locus of worship. He is the way in which men and women come to God to worship. So I preached that message. And uh, somebody afterward asked me, well, what was your practical application? What was your practical application? And I thought, well, what what does that indicate when you hear a question like that? What's your practical application? And I'm thinking my practical application is stand in awe of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's a pretty good application. Uh, The application being that you must come to Jesus Christ to worship. Look at the wonder of the Son, whom the Lord has established as the temple. And uh, he has given us access to the Father. We can come boldly to the throne of grace through Jesus Christ, you know. And I almost got the sense as if that was negated because there's no practical application. Uh, We preach the Word of God, and as we're going to see in a moment in our next point, we believe the Holy Spirit then applies that Word and that truth. And if you can see the wonder and the preciousness of Jesus Christ and all that God has done for you through him, there's a host of practical applications that are going to come forth as the Holy Spirit applies that to your heart. Expository preaching. We emphasize the personal study and application of God's word. Get in the word. We're not afraid of you digging into the scriptures. You might come from a certain spiritual background where such is not encouraged. And I think one of the reasons why in some certain denominations it's not encouraged that you read the, the Scriptures yourself is because some of what's being taught is not scriptural, and they don't want you to find out. <laughs> uh, get in the Word. Study it yourself. Read it. Uh, challenge. Sure, if you hear something that's being taught that shouldn't be taught, challenge that. Absolutely, because our goal is to be biblical. So we emphasize personal study, the application of God's Word. We elevate Scripture above tradition. We elevate Scripture above denominational distinctives. We elevate Scripture even, this is going to stretch some of you, even over historic Christian creeds and confessions where necessary, when necessary. So we rely upon the Word and trust that God will bless it. So a high view of God, sufficiency of Scripture. Number three, this is related to the last one. A recognition of the Spirit's ministry. A recognition of the Spirit's ministry. The Holy Spirit is real. The Holy Spirit is present. The Holy Spirit is active. The Holy Spirit is working. Uh, The Holy Spirit is indwelling every genuine believer. That has real impact for how we do ministry. Paul said to the Thessalonians, For we know, brothers, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What he's saying is we know know that our ministry is effective. We know because the Holy Spirit took that gospel and he implanted it in your heart and he's transformed you. The Holy Spirit was active in that. Later on in 2 Thessalonians 2, he talks again about how they're growing by the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in saving men. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in sanctifying men. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And that's the Holy Spirit's ministry of drawing men and women to Jesus. He draws us. He indwells us. Jesus said in John 14 that he's going to give us a helper who will be with us forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit dwells within genuine believers. The Holy Spirit, according to John 14, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but the Holy Spirit also teaches uh, those who are genuine believers. What does he do? He opens our eyes to the word of God. He imparts that to our hearts. He gives us understanding uh, of the word. Now, If the Spirit draws and convicts and softens and hardens and blinds and reveals, what does that then mean for practical ministry? How does the fact that the Holy Spirit is living and active affect how we do ministry? Well, it means that we don't water down the gospel. See, the temptation is that if the Holy Spirit isn't real, and the Holy Spirit does not convict and does not draw, and I cannot depend upon the Spirit blessing the unadulterated gospel... Well, then the temptation is that I'm going to present a gospel which is maybe uh, more appealing. 
Because, see, then my goal is to get you to respond in and of yourself without the Holy Spirit's intervention or the Holy Spirit's work. And if my job then is to get you to respond to what I'm uh, teaching, especially now if we're thinking of an unbeliever coming to Christ for salvation, but without the Holy Spirit's ministry and drawing that person, then I'm going to share a gospel which I think appeals to that person, which is simply then going to motivate them to act. And historically we've seen this, that the gospel then is changed. The gospel is watered down. The gospel is a therapeutic gospel. The gospel then maybe even a flesh-based gospel, maybe a, a quick prayerism type gospel. I'm going to share with you a few facts about the gospel and then have you pray a prayer and then tell you that you're saved, uh, something like this. No quick prayerism. Uh, we do not take a seeker-sensitive approach. We need to repackage the gospel for the culture. We ought to be sensitive to the culture and the cultural moment. We ought to be, understand where the world is so that we can... Uh, communicate uh, with the world in a meaningful way, but that doesn't mean we adjust the gospel. This is not a seeker-sensitive approach. If the Spirit is the one working in us effectually, if it's He who sanctifies us through the Word of God, uh, then we use God's means which the Spirit blesses. That also means what? No legalism. No legalism. What is legalism? What it is that uh, authoritative imposition of rules upon people uh, giving the impression then that you must perform in order to be accepted by God. I mean, that's what Jesus Christ came in opposition against in his day, against the Jewish leadership. No legalism. Legalism in salvation, that is, we don't work for salvation, but also legalism in sanctification. There are some who preach the gospel freely, salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone, and then some receive Jesus, and then all of a sudden you start putting rules on them as if the evidence of genuine spiritual growth is that now you've just cleaned up your life. You dress differently, and you talk differently, and you listen to different music, and you stop doing this, and you stop doing that, and that then is wonderful evidence, oh, look at the spiritual growth. In reality, it's just rule-keeping. If the Holy Spirit is active and working and the Holy Spirit indwells in believers, then we understand that spiritual growth looks like what? What does spiritual growth actually look like? We know from Galatians 5, it looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's the character of Jesus. That's what genuine spiritual growth looks like. And so we trust that if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you and you're availing yourself to the means of grace, you're going to grow. Where does this come in practically then? Well, especially as a pastor. Uh, you, you hear oftentimes those who might do some things where you question, hmm, seems like maybe that doesn't quite align with what we're compelled to do as Christians when it comes to our behavior. You hear people get into conflict. You hear people uh, maybe blow up at one another here and there, and reconciliation is needed and so on. This is such a wonderful gift to a, to a pastor, understanding that the Holy Spirit is present, because I can think, you know what? If that person's a genuine believer, and I believe, you know, maybe believe that that person is, I know they have the Spirit. If I know they have the Spirit, then I have the confidence that with that spiritual problem comes a spiritual solution, and God's means are what He will use then to produce growth in this person. If I don't believe the Holy Spirit is working in that person's life, well, then I'm going to rely upon what? Reformation. Just reformation, retraining, re-education, hope for the best. But if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, then I'm confident that his means will be used in your life to see growth. So no legalism. It's not our role to manipulate people into receiving Jesus. If the Spirit imparts the Word of God, then my concern is with the accurate teaching of Scripture. Not novel ways to preach to try to motivate you. If the Spirit works through the Word, then our emphasis is on a saturation with the Word of God. Spiritual solutions to spiritual problems. All believers have the Spirit within them. Next of all, number four, a pillar to our philosophy of ministry is an accurate view of man's nature. An accurate view of man's nature. The reason the Holy Spirit must work and the reason the Holy Spirit must draw men to salvation, because man, according to the biblical revelation, is spiritually blind and spiritually dead. That is, man in his natural state, born into this world, has, is spiritually unable. The 
analogy that's used in Scripture, or the metaphor that's used in Scripture, is that of spiritual death. The idea being that we spiritually are dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I mean, that's universal. And so Paul is saying this is the nature of man, dead spiritually. You cannot make yourself come to spiritual life. That's the point. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so understand that salvation is not a rescue mission. Uh, somebody's uh, you know, on the brink of death and uh, very, very sick, and God comes along and just offers the cure and, and resuscitates that one back to life. That's not what's going on here. The biblical revelation of, God's, of man's nature is that man is spiritually dead. We cannot please God in and of ourselves uh, prior to salvation. What we need is for God then to make us alive. And so this is about spiritual resurrection, not spiritual resuscitation. That's the nature of man. We were dead in our trespasses in sins, Colossians says, but then God made us alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. And that's why Jesus in John 3, remember we were there a few weeks ago, he's talking to Nicodemus. He says to Nicodemus, this, this teacher of the Jews, I mean, he knew the Old Testament scriptures, he was immersed in his system, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, Unless you are born of the water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Then he says, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And remember what we said when we were in that text? We said that John there is alluding to a text in Ezekiel. Remember Ezekiel's vision of the dry bones? And Ezekiel then is told to preach to the dry bones. And God's making the point that the day is coming where he's going to take the, de- I mean, the dead dead, the dry bones. Uh, there's no flesh there, just skeletons. And uh, the word of God is preached. And there in that vision, those dry bones come back to life. And they're fully healed and become fully formed. And there there's life in them. And that's the vision. And that's what John is alluding to, or that's what Jesus is alluding to in John 3. The idea being that in a natural state, mankind is spiritually dead. It's the word of God then imparted by the Holy Spirit that brings spiritual life. Why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why that... If, if, I mean, if you're, if you're EMS, if you're, if you're a doctor, you're a first responder, and you come upon the scene, and you come upon somebody who is, you know, on the brink of death, you can work with that, can't you? You can work with that. You can do everything you need to do to bring, that in, uh, to bring that one back. But if you come across one who is dead, I mean, no doubt about it, no question about it, that one is dead, uh, there's nothing you can do, is there? You can spend your time working and working and working on this one who's clearly dead, trying to bring them back. It doesn't make any sense, does it? We must recognize that mankind is spiritually dead because that's going to affect then the methodology that we use in ministry. I'm not doing everything I can to fan our spiritual goodness into flame. I'm not looking at mankind as basically good, just needs a little bit of encouragement. No. We recognize that mankind in his natural spiritual state is spiritually dead and needs the life of God. And so this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, to bring life to those who are dead. Blind, dead, incurable, defiled hearts, which is why the Bible says there's a need for a new birth. Jesus says you must be born again. There must be new life. Only God can open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead and change a man's heart. And so, if you're going to have a successful philosophy of ministry, you've got to seek to satisfy man's real needs, not their perceived needs. Man's greatest need is regeneration, new life. He needs to be made new by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the starting point. Transformation, not Reformation. And so, again, what's our application? 
A pure gospel message. A pure gospel message. Also recognizing that sanctification is a work of the Spirit on the inside and is not the result of legalistic rules. Uh, Spiritual growth results in spiritual fruit. Legalism is just like taking a dead tree and hanging fake fruit on it, right? Uh, We understand that the Holy Spirit produces spiritual life. Number five. Another pillar to our philosophy of ministry is a correct understanding of the purpose of the church. A correct understanding of the purpose of the church. Primarily, we exist to worship and glorify God. Yes. To worship and glorify God. Yes. Uh, We exist also to be a repository of divine truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says of the church that the church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church is a repository of divine truth. It exists to worship and glorify God. Also, the church exists to provide a context of loving fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual edification. Ephesians 4, a little bit longer passage. Paul, in Ephesians 4, speaks of spiritual giftedness and how God has equipped us all by his Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts. And he says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. He's saying this is the role of leaders in the church. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's saying that we then what? We have those who are gifted to teach and to preach and to lead for this purpose that we can be mature as a church so that we become more like Jesus Christ so that we're no longer susceptible to false teaching. We're not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or human cunning, by craftiness, and so on. Verse 15, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What he's saying is that the church as a body means that each individual who's here has a role to play. Just as a body has multiple parts, the church has multiple parts, and just like a body where every part contributes to the greater good, to the whole, so is it with the church. And so uh, we say that as we do ministry, we're not concerned with consumerism. We're not concerned with creating a church where we have all the amenities and all the programs to attract many so that they can come and simply consume. The biblical picture is that of a body where every part is essential, each part is interdependent, and each part is working together, contributing to the health of of the whole. What does that health look like according to Ephesians 4? When every part is doing what it ought to be doing, then what? The whole body grows up into the fullness of Stature, I'm sorry, the, the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we all collectively become more and more like Jesus Christ when each part is doing what it ought to be doing to contribute to that maturity. That's the vision for church. And so the church exists to provide a context of loving fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual edification. With that, it also serves as a training center whereby people can grow through the application and teaching of the word and the utilization of their spiritual gifts. And so the church is a place for you to serve, right? The church is a place for me to serve. So not consumerism, uh, but uh, employing our spiritual gifts. And so I encourage you this morning, find somewhere to serve. Find somewhere to serve. And next of all, the church exists to be a light in the dark world for the evangelization of the lost. That's That's the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He says, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. And so as much as we want to build up loving community here, we recognize that we are not to become insular, as if we just uh, hole up here as those uh, who are just afraid of the culture. We are to engage the culture and share the gospel and uh, allow the Uh, love of Christ to be projected upon the world. That's the Great Commission. Then lastly, and we'll do this quickly, the last pillar of our philosophy of ministry is a plurality, a plurality of godly qualified leadership. A plurality of godly qualified leadership. At Calvary Baptist Church, presently we only have two elders. We would like that to change. 
We would like to add additional elders to the leadership at Calvary Baptist Church as men uh, are qualified for that. And you know, you know how you recognize an elder. An elder is one who we naturally observe others going to uh, for spiritual guidance, that others recognize as having some spiritual maturity, others recognize as kind of having that spiritual uh, fatherhood uh, uh, character. Uh, That's part of what helps us to see who God is working in and developing as an elder. But we desire to have a plurality of godly qualified leadership. We think that's God's design. And so 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if we were to put together a... uh, if we were to put together a document that said we're looking for elders, uh, what would we write down? This is who we're looking for. This is the character quality we're looking for. These are the qualifications we're looking for. What would we put on that paper, I wonder? This is what we'd put on that paper. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall under the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. That seems like something great to put on a, uh, on a, uh, on a document seeking out elders. Titus 1, 9, 1, uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Likewise, is another list that gives us the same character qualities. The point is, godly qualified leadership. Those who ought to be in positions of leadership at Calvary Baptist Church are those who others can look to as exemplary in the Christian faith. Of course, we're all sinners and we all fail uh, to a certain degree. Uh, But those who are in leadership are not those who are in leadership because they have some giftedness when it comes to what? Um, Being the CEO type, uh, being able to take us to the next level, being able to cast a vision. That's not our main concern. Our main concern is simply godly qualified leadership. And so Hebrews tells us that Godly leadership are those whom the church ought to be able to look at and say, if I were to follow their manner of life, uh, then I'd be well served. If I could just look to the leadership and say, you know what, Uh, they're exemplary in these areas, I could follow their way of life and I'm not going to be led astray. Well, that would be ideal, wouldn't it? So godly, qualified leadership. Now, in all of that, let me emphasize again as we close, that's not to say we believe that we have a corner on the truth here or that this is the only good church in the city. Okay, So please don't have that, that, that impression. What we are saying, however, is that we have an obligation to the degree that we understand biblical principles. And biblical principles, uh, when it comes to God's design for the church, we have an obligation to the best of our ability to arrange the ministry of our church to comply with those principles. Right, And so that's our desire. And so... If you are a member of Calvary Baptist Church, I hope we're on the same page with that philosophy of ministry. If you're kind of on the fence and you're wondering, is this the type of church that I want to be a part of? Well, please understand, those are the pillars, right? Those are the pillars. That's our philosophy of ministry. And uh, we, don't always, uh, we don't always fulfill those things to the best of our ability, but we want you to hold us accountable to that too, right? And uh, so if you're on the fence wondering whether or not you should join, well, maybe that's going to help you, or maybe that's going to lead you to say, no, I don't want to be any part of that. Uh, But uh, if you understand those things to be biblical, then maybe you can make that decision to join us here at Calvary. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for these, what I think are clear biblical principles, and pray that you would just help us by your grace to be the church as you've designed it to be. Uh, and as we understand your word, I pray you would, if we are, put it this way, Lord, we need your direction. Um, we need you to continually refine our understanding of Scripture. We need you to correct us uh, where we may be wrong. We need you to strengthen us where we may be weak. We need you to, um, maybe areas where we have an overemphasis on something. We need you to impart balance to us. So we recognize that we're sinners and we don't have everything figured out. But we also recognize that you've given us your word. Your word is uh, such that it can be understood. Your word is that which you've given us to see your church built. And so um, help us to be obedient 
to what we see in Scripture regarding the design for the church. We pray for Calvary. We pray that you'll bless. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful to these principles. Um, We pray that you continue to grow us in unity together as a body of believers who are committed to the same philosophy of ministry. Um, Pray ultimately that you'll help us to grow as a community of believers, help us to show a love for one another which reveals the fact that we are disciples of Christ. We pray that you'd help us then as the church to reach out to the culture and to share the gospel with the world, recognizing that the culture is not the enemy, the culture is not uh, uh, those with, which, with whom we are engaged in a culture war, but they are the mission field. So help us to love the souls of the culture and to reach them with the gospel. Um, and help us to do that from a strong footing, knowing that our own house is in order as we are seeking to do church according to your design. And then, Lord, we confess this morning that even feeling as if we have a biblical philosophy of ministry, you may feel like we can just build the church in and of our own power and ability and that our program or our philosophy is what's going to bring success. And, Lord, we recognize that's not the case. Lord, all spiritual success comes as a result of you working through your Holy Spirit and the degree to which there is any spiritual growth here in this place is the degree to which you are working. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory for any growth that we see here, any spiritual growth. Protect us from falling prey to unbiblical measures of success. As the church grows numerically, help us not to be under any illusion that that's the ultimate measure of success. Help us instead to be utilizing your means to see legitimate growth, and then to turn right around and to give you all the glory for it. And now, Lord, this morning we just pray for those who may not be believers here. Maybe a little bit different kind of message for them to come in on this morning, but we pray that they would begin to see their need for Jesus Christ, that they'd see their need for salvation, that they'd recognize their own spiritual state, that they are entirely unable to achieve salvation in and of their own efforts, but they need Christ, so help them to see that. And then for those of us maybe who are on the fence when it comes to church and your design for church, I pray that you would just strengthen us, help us to be fully committed uh, to your design for local churches who are operating according to your standard and your word to reach the world and to build a loving community. Lord, we thank you for all this. We pray that you would help us as leadership at Calvary. Uh, to stay faithful to your word, and we pray that you would add to our ranks as elders. Lord, we thank you for all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.